first of the 12 apostles. We're going to consider these men this summer, take these summer weeks to consider the men that Christ called to be his apostles and those whom he commissioned to serve him. There are many uh, things that I hope will be accomplished in our hearts together as a result of this study, but let me lead with what I believe is among the most important, and that is that as we shall consider these men, we shall find that they are extraordinarily ordinary. Extraordinarily ordinary. Let me uh, read from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Paul writing to the Corinthian church said, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Invariably, I hear people, primarily Christians, lament the fact, they complain, they regret, they offer deep regret that, that the church is losing influence in the culture. And what they mean by that, of course, is that the church is less popular. That means that their friends maybe are not quite as impressed that they go to church or that they go to that church, whatever that church is. And if you don't believe that there is something to be said for being a part of the happening church, you need to come walk with me a little bit. There's no end to conversations about talking about the latest church. So we find ourselves in a culture that increasingly has, uh, if you will, a disregard and a lack of respect for the church. And as Christian people who have enjoyed the buoyancy over our lifetime of the fact that the church was well-respected and the church had influence and so forth. Now we find ourselves kind of on the outside looking in at the culture and lamenting the fact that they're having the party and we're not invited. And that bothers Christians because we're supposed to be the people who have positions of influence and so forth. All of which I, I want to say categorically, I do believe that God raises up people in influence. I do believe that God raises up people who are prominent. God raises up people who are powerful as the world measures such things. Certainly God does that. But on the main, that's not what God does. In fact, I will assure you that God has little regard for perpetuating worldly power structures. How do I know that? Because every worldly power structure that's present in the Bible has come and gone. And if God's agenda was to preserve worldly power, he would have made sure we preserve some of that. 
But instead, God's agenda is to preserve the glory of God. And so what you find in the scripture is that in spite of the fact that the governor is a pagan or the soldiers are evil or even the religious zealots have issues of power, the glory of God nonetheless perseveres. Isn't it good to know that our hope is not in men, but our hope is in God. And I want to suggest to you that we are a church like every other church that is just a bunch of regular people who've been called to follow Christ. And we follow Christ in our homes. And I assure you, friend, it doesn't matter how powerful you are outside your home. When you're at home, you're just a husband or you're just a wife or you're just a mother or you're just a father, or you're just a son or a daughter, a brother or a sister. At home, nobody cares about your resume. Nobody cares about your accolades outside of the house. Nobody cares about how important it are, you are, how, how hard a day you had. Oh, you just had no idea how much grief I have to put up with at work. Well, welcome to the planet. So we're going to consider the lives of 12 men this summer. And every one of them are extraordinarily ordinary. Every one of them. And we're going to begin where the Bible begins. And that is with Simon Peter. Now I was uh, lamenting the fact, regretfully, this week that uh, this kind of preaching doesn't really suit me personally. I don't enjoy basically referencing every book of the New Testament every week. So but we're going to be in Matthew, we're going to be in Mark, we're going to be in Luke, we're going to be in John, we're going to be in Acts, we're going to be in Corinthians, and then we're going to make a beeline to 1 Peter, since Peter is one of those disciples who actually contributed by his own hand a portion of the New Testament. So we know exactly what Peter thought about these things and how he responded. But I will assure you, the Peter of 1 Peter is not the Peter that we meet in the Gospels. We shall see that plainly. I want to ask the question to begin with, who was Simon Peter? And the answer uh, initially will be found in John chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there with me, John chapter 1 and verse 35. I want to answer this question, first of all, who was Simon Peter? So we're going to pick up the story of Peter's life as it interfaces with John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Verse 35, John the Baptist has been preaching and has given witness in John chapter 1 of the place of Jesus. And now we're introduced to some of his, John the Baptist's disciples. The next day, verse 35, John, that is the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So, understand what's going on. John the Baptist is a preacher. And as a rabbi, he would have collected people who wanted to follow him, to, to hear his teaching, to, if you will, to become a disciple of his school of thought. Now, we have the same thing today. It's just different. 
But we have people who follow certain people, and they sort of create their own echo chambers, and they talk to each other about the same things. And, and to, to some degree, every person in this room uh, has built an echo chamber of their own making. If you're on Facebook, Facebook will help you build a pretty high-walled echo chamber. You're only going to see articles that you like. Because Facebook is about selling ads. It's not about giving you information. Facebook is pure capitalism. So you say, well, that's all I see. Look at stuff online. Dummy, that's what it's supposed to do. If you like articles about fishing and you click on a fishing video, guess what you're going to see? You're going to get a phone call on your phone from a telemarketer trying to sell you a fishing trip. You say, how did they know? They know. And you helped them know. Well, John, like every other preacher of his day, had collected some disciples. And here we are. Verse 38. Jesus turned and he saw them following, these two, and he said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. That would be four o'clock in the afternoon. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Peter. So we are introduced to John's disciples, one of whom happens to be Andrew, who's Peter's brother. And by the way, we will consider Andrew next week. Happens to be Peter's brother. He goes to get Peter, tells him he found the Messiah. Peter comes and Jesus engages him. He gives him a new name, if you will. Uh, I always, always get a giggle out of this myself. You say, well, Brother Greg, you got a kind of wacky sense of humor. True. Verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, so you're Simon, the son of John. Elsewhere in the Gospels, that's translated Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonas. Jonas is the derivative of John. So he's the son of John, which is, in our language, John's son. So Simon is Peter Johnson. You got that? It's a fact. It says it right there. You're Simon Johnson. But Jesus called him something else. He called him Cephas, which is the Aramaic word for rock. The Greek word is Petros. Petra, which means Peter. Petros. Cephas. So, who was Peter? Well, he's a guy with several names. He is Simon, but Jesus renames him Peter. That also could be translated Cephas. So, in the scripture, you will see him by all of those names. He is the son of John. John is a very common name. So is Simon, by the way. There are at least seven different men named Simon in the New Testament. Seven. Including Simon from Cyrene, who carried the cross of Christ. So, this is not an, a, an uncommon name. Perhaps that factored into the reason why Jesus renames him. 
But normally, when a person is given a new name in Scripture, it is because God has a new responsibility for them. We know from Mark chapter 1 that Peter is a commercial fisherman with his brother, Andrew. They run a family, or if you will, two brothers fishing uh, business. So we know he's a commercial fisherman. Now, Susan and I grew up on the coast of Texas, and uh, where we grew up, uh, a lot of shrimpers, a lot of fishermen. Uh, I would say about every commercial fisherman I've ever met, every commercial shrimper I've ever met, they are extraordinarily ordinary. I said that without any perjury whatsoever. They're extraordinarily ordinary. They're just regular guys. Hardworking, and they stink a lot. Man, do they stink. Susan used to work in a grocery store, and they'd come in for food to fill up these shrimp boats. They'd go out for a few days. Man, man, man. You could spot them. You could smell them and spot them. You could spot them and smell them. So there's Andrew. There's Peter. They are commercial fishermen. But we know something else that's more weighty, perhaps, for our purposes this morning, and that is that he is the leader of all the disciples. He said, well, Brother Greg, how do you know that? Well, there's some really obvious ways. Number one, there are four different lists. We're not going to belabor them. You can look them up for yourself. But there are four different lists of all 12 of the disciples throughout the Bible. Uh, three in the Gospels and one in the book of Acts. Four different lists. The first name on every list is Peter. All four lists, Peter's number one. There's a reason why Peter's listed first. And I'm indebted to John MacArthur who has written this paragraph. I think it's... Uh, says better than I could say it. Peter's name is mentioned in the Gospels more than any other name except Jesus. No one speaks as often as Peter. No one is spoken to by the Lord as often as Peter. No disciple is so frequently rebuked by the Lord as Peter. No disciple ever rebukes the Lord except Peter. No one confessed Christ more boldly or acknowledged Christ's lordship more explicitly. Yet no other disciple ever verbally denied Christ as forcefully or as publicly as Peter. No one is praised and blessed by Christ the way Peter was, yet Peter was the only disciple Christ ever addressed as Satan. The Lord had harsher things to say to Peter than he ever said to any of the other disciples. And Peter is the first name on every list of disciples. He is the leader of the disciples. And he is extraordinarily ordinary. We could use several adjectives to describe him, and this is but a short list. He is impetuous. He is inquisitive. He is nosy. He is assertive. He has a speak-first personality. He blurts things out. He's highly offensive, depending on context. Or he is the one you want leading your parade if you're going into a fight. He is the leader. I want to show you just a couple of passages from the Gospel of Matthew that will help illustrate this. We'll start in Matthew 15, and then uh, we'll make our way to some application. 
I would suggest that we know, as God's people today in our church at least, we know more about Peter than we know any other disciple because the Bible says more about Peter than any other disciple. So we know more about him. But Matthew chapter 15, verse 15 Jesus has just told a parable uh, in the context of the Pharisees, and you'll notice that Peter is the one who asked about it. And Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. Explain the parable. In chapter 18, Matthew chapter 18, Peter's always looking to be the guy that speaks up. Verse 21, Matthew 18, verse 21 then Peter came up and he said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Peter asked that question. Look at Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter said in reply, See, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? What will we have in the life to come? Jesus said, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Many who are first will be last and the last first. Peter asked that question. What's in it for us? One other example, Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11, verse 21. And Peter remembered... Jesus had cursed the fig tree in the entrance into Jerusalem. Peter, Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown in the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass will be done for him. Peter speaks up and speaks out. So he is impetuous. He is inquisitive. He is nosy. He is assertive. He is a speak-first kind of personality. He is a leader among men. We are thankful for Peter's life. So how did Peter become a disciple? Or, if you will permit, the word apostle. Well, as we have already mentioned in John chapter 1, he is a previous follower of John the Baptist. And his brother, introduces him to the one called the Messiah, the Christ. And so he becomes a disciple of Christ. But the Bible has much to say about them becoming apostles. I want you to see this in John chapter 6. You'll turn there with me. John chapter 6. This represents, if you will, a... A turning, a 
turning of Jesus' relationship with these men. You'll notice uh, verse 60, John chapter 6. When many of his disciples heard it, we read this passage a week ago here as regards to the Lord's Supper. Jesus has just said, I am the bread of life and you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Now, you may assume that the word disciple there refers to the 12. You would be wrong. There are many disciples following Jesus. Many. Dare we say dozens. Who knows exactly how many. But when many of his disciples heard it, a hard saying, who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If the, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no man can come to me unless it be granted by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Clearly not talking about the 12 here. He's talking about these many disciples, the dozens of others. Many turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered him, Lord... To whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you, that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. So these men are the twelve amongst all the disciples of Christ that are mentioned, and they are, there are many uh, in the plural, who leave Jesus, do not continue to follow him. But these 12 remain, and the most prominent of them is Peter. Now, all of this brings us to, I, I hope, what I, I think will be three wonderful applications uh, as we think about what Christ has done for us. And the first thing I want to say is, what, what are we to learn from Peter's life, and how are we to apply this to our own lives? The first thing we could say in summary of Peter's life is that he is the disciple whom Jesus taught the whole counsel of God. He is the disciple whom Jesus taught the whole counsel of God. I mention this because I want to suggest to you that Peter's life should not be remarkable. Sure, he's remarkable because he's one of the twelve. Sure, he is remarkable because he's the leader of the twelve. Sure, he's remarkable because he actually walked with Christ in the flesh but his commitment to Christ should not be remarkable. This is an extraordinarily ordinary man, just like us. And his faith in God is remarkable. But his faith should not be more remarkable than yours. And the reason is because everything that Jesus taught Peter, Peter taught us. Let's turn to 1 Peter and try to see some of this. 1 Peter. I want you to note the language that Peter uses. I would suggest to you if this language is unfamiliar to you or it's not the kind of uh, words you would use to discuss your own walk with God, then you may ask yourself, who does Peter know that I don't? 
If you're here today without an awareness of Christ or a knowledge of Christ or a relationship with Christ, then I would ask you to consider your relationship with Christ and realize that this same Jesus that Peter describes in 1 Peter 1 is the same Jesus that we want you to know and you can know. Jesus teaches Peter much and Peter goes from there and teaches us much. I want you to note this, these words beginning in verse 3 of 1 Peter 1. These are remarkable, but not terribly so for one who knows Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Just saying about that. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, meaning this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, that is guarded by God with your name on it, in this you rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, and by the way, who decides what's necessary? Not you. You say, well, I don't know why God permits this, or God allows this, or God brings this, or I don't know why God didn't stop that. I don't know why God is doing what he's doing. Well, that's the reason you're not God. You don't get to decide such things. You don't get to decide how hard it is, how lonely it is, how difficult it is, how wrong it is. You don't get to decide those things. We live in a world that is contaminated by people, sinful people. And there are many trials in this life. And some of them we bring on ourselves, and many of them we are brought on us by other people. But we live in this world. And if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials so that, the purpose being, that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, gold is not going to heaven. There's no, there's no value to gold in the economy of God. It's plenty valuable here, but it's not valuable there. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That means it's the good stuff, not the cheap stuff, not the contaminated stuff, not the diluted stuff. It's tested by fire, nothing left but gold may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When Christ comes back, he expects to find his people ready. Consider the parables. The parable of the ten virgins, the ten bridesmaids. Five of them didn't have enough light, oil for their lamp. And they went away to get more oil because they wasted their oil. They were not ready. They live their lives, or if you will, they live their bridesmaid existence squandering the purpose for which they were made, which was to be a bridesmaid here at this wedding. You were called, you were, you were commissioned, you were challenged to be a part of this wedding. But you, you got busy doing other things, you got distracted, you got playing cards, or you know, who knows, watching soap operas, sitting around doing nothing. The groom got delayed, you just burned through all your oil. You left, go get your lamp filled up, here comes the groom, and there's only five left. 
And the other five come back and said, hey, we want to get back in. They said, nope. The groom came and you weren't ready because you got distracted. That's what he's talking about here. How do distractions come in our lives? They come in part through trials. The notion that somehow my life is not supposed to be hard because I'm a Christian is not a biblical notion. Rather, the Bible teaches that those who follow Christ will suffer. We sort of blows holes in the theory that somehow if you're a committed Christian, you're going to be well regarded in the culture. If you're a dedicated Christian who responds the way Christ's people respond, that somehow you're going to move up, 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 and the world is eventually going to bow at your feet and say, oh, you are the most wonderful human being I've ever known. Quite the contrary. If they didn't do that for your Savior, who was the most wonderful person the world has ever known, why should they do that for you? We get drunk on the praise of men and the attitudes of men and the hopes of men. And Peter is blowing holes in that in this opening paragraph of his letter. That you, even though you're grieved by various trials, by the tested genuineness of your faith, when Jesus returns, you will be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Your faithfulness will prove that Jesus was right. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The disciple, Peter is the disciple whom Jesus taught the whole counsel of God. Consider the gravity of this kind of theology. I will tell you, friend, that most Christians will give lip service to believe in that, but they don't practice that. Most Christians are soft. Most Christians are easily discouraged. Most Christians are easily allured away by the sirens of life. A little more of this, a little more of this, a little more of that, a little more of that, and man, I'm gone. And the reason churches are empty is not because Christ is wrong. It's because Christians have bailed. I want to tell you, this disciple is one whom Jesus taught the whole counsel of God, and he got it. He got it because that's the nature in which Jesus intends for his disciples to live their lives. There's a second thing we see about Peter, and that is that he is the disciple whom Jesus taught to live under authority. I uh, struggle with whether to include this in an application, but I just think it's so critically important in, in my own experience with people. I'm going to show you a couple of things. Turn, turn back to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. I want you to see, hold your place in 1 Peter. If you've still got it, we'll come back. Matthew chapter 17. 
just want you to see what's going on in Matthew 17. The chapter begins with the Mount of Transfiguration. So Peter, James, and John uh, are up on the mountain with Jesus, and he's transfigured, and there's an appearance uh, of Moses and Elijah. All that occurs in the opening and then when he comes, verse 14, he comes down from the mountain. There is a crowd because the nine disciples that he's left at the foot of the mountain are trying to heal uh, a boy who has epilepsy. They can't do it. Jesus has to do it. And so, as a result, they hear Jesus begin to teach. Jesus takes this opportunity of this healing to make the broader point. So he uses the healing as a platform for teaching. By the way, the New Testament is not fundamentally about Jesus' miracles. The New Testament is fundamentally about Jesus' teaching. Jesus is a, is a rabbi. He's a teacher. He's fundamentally a teacher who does miracles in order to validate his teaching. So here he does a miracle. He casts out this epileptic demon and... He begins to teach. So, verse 22, this is where we pick up the story, Matthew 17. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. You would say, of course they were. This is the man that we've left everything for, and you're telling me he's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to die. All right? So, he, he gets that on the table, now, they come to Capernaum, verse 24. Capernaum is his hometown, his city, where he's moved from Nazareth. He lives on, on the Sea of Galilee at the town called Capernaum. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? Okay, again, give you a little backstory here. A drachma is a, a day's wage, so two drachma is two days' wages. So you can do the math. This is what the tax was required. So it's not a small amount, particularly for an itinerant preacher and his itinerant band of disciples. Where are they going to come up with a, an awful lot of money? Well, this is the temple tax. He said, yes. Verse 25, Peter did. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? So again, you have to kind of throw yourself back into that scenario. Jesus offers, offers a question. Peter, I'm going to ask you a, a riddle. When kings tax their subjects, do they tax their own children? The answer to that is no. No. If you're a son... You, you don't pay tax. You get to enjoy the tax payments of others who are not sons. So, when he said from others, Peter did, verse 26, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free, free from the tax. Right? Okay, now this is a temple tax. Now who's in charge of the temple? God. And who's the son of God? Jesus so should Jesus pay the temple tax? No. No, but they don't understand him as Jesus, so the sons are free. Jesus doesn't have to pay the tax. Remember, that's where this paragraph starts. Does, the, does your teacher not pay the tax? Peter said, yes. And then he gets in the house, 
And he decides to look into that. However, verse 27, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you'll find a shekel. Now, a shekel is worth four drachma. Take it and give it to them for me, my two drachma, and for yourself, your two drachma. A shekel. The disciple Peter is the one that Jesus taught to live under authority. You say, well, what's what's that got to do here? Well, he's obviously going to pay a temple tax, a temple tax that he does not ostensibly need to pay, but he does nonetheless pay it. All of which brings us back to 1 Peter. Go back to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 13. Peter has much to say about living under authority. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. I would ask you, who is the emperor when Peter writes these words in 1 Peter? Well, the answer to that, Peter wrote, we believe somewhere during the reign of Nero. Nero is the emperor. Now, I don't know what you think is the poster boy for a bad politician, but Nero is on the short list. He hated Christians, took Christians, and used them as human torches at his parties. We're going to throw a party in Rome. We need some Christians that we can light up and serve as torches. We would call him a pagan. We would call him a mean guy. We'd call him an evil man. And yet, Peter says, honor the emperor. He is the disciple whom Jesus taught to live under authority. I will tell you, there are many things that in our flesh compete for our allegiance to Christ, but one of them is this desire that our way should be advanced. We should should have our way, that we're the smartest guy in every room we walk into, that we should command this, we should dictate this, that we should demand this again and again and again and again, and yet... Peter is a man who has some experience there. Consider Peter's history. Peter is a man that when Jesus says, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, Peter pulls him aside in John and and tells him, Lord, you should never talk like this. To which Jesus responds to Peter and says, Satan, get behind me. He rebukes Peter for for saying, no, this cannot happen. But Peter doesn't learn the lesson when Jesus is finally betrayed in the Gospel of John, chapter 18. The the Bible says that uh, the the high priest comes because he has the authority. The high priest or the chief priest come and they're leading this entourage of soldiers. Now, we don't know exactly how many soldiers are, but when the Romans sent a, a cohort of soldiers, it was 600. Now, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane praying. And the the priest is leading this entourage of people. Now, you say, well, it couldn't have been 600. Okay, pick a number. You don't like that number? Come up with your own number. 
But the point is, how many soldiers are going to intimidate you? You're a bunch of fishermen, ex-fishermen ostensibly, and you're following Jesus. So how many of these soldiers are going to intimidate you? How many does it take for you to feel like I'm in trouble? I'm telling you, if a dozen soldiers walk up, decked out, ready for battle, I'm saying, yes, sir, no, sir, yes, sir, no, sir. But what does Peter do? He pulls out a knife, and he's going to try, apparently, to cut the head off of the high priest's slave. He's going he's to take him out. This is a guy that does not respect authority. The high priest has authority. God has created this system that permits his authority. And he has this authority. Jesus says, put that up. And he takes his hand and he heals the man's ear. Jesus, good news, Peter missed his throat and got his ear. But Jesus healed him. Why? Because this man is impetuous. It's a man who doesn't want to live under authority. And yet, he is changed by the time we come to 1 Peter, some 30 years removed from the life of Christ. He is changed so that he can now say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution. He's a man who lives under authority. I want to suggest to you as Christian people, our witness needs to be that we are people who live under authority. Now, our ultimate authority is God, and where God and the state disagree, we're going with God. Understand that. But where there is no disagreement or where there is no prohibition of the gospel, then we're going to submit to the earthly institution. And the reason we're going to do that is because this is exactly the way God commanded us. And better men than us, stronger willed than us, more impetuous than us, more egotistical than us, have understood this and come to agree with it. We need to understand this is the nature of our God. We're to live under authority. We're to live under the state's authority. We're to live under the church's authority. Yes, the church has authority over our lives. The church has the authority to say, don't do that. Stop doing that. Quit doing that. Your parents have authority. Your employer has authority. Your neighbor has a implied authority expectation of righteousness and so forth. The world certainly is expecting us to be those who don't give an offense for the gospel. This is the nature of Peter's life. Then the last thing, and perhaps the most precious of all that we can see in Peter's life, is that he is the disciple whom Jesus restored. Consider it again with me, the gospel of John chapter 13. John chapter 13 Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet. You'll remember what happens when he comes to Jesus. Uh, verse 8, rather verse 6. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Well, Peter, that's a problem. If Jesus doesn't wash your feet, then you're not one of his. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Peter said to him, again, impetuous, Lord, okay, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Get it all. In other words, I want more than these other turkeys. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet 
but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. John chapter 13. I want you to notice, he continues. Peter, impetuous, ever the impetuous one. Verse 34, Jesus concludes after the foot washing, and he says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. (coughs) Excuse me. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I, true, truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. You know how this story ends, but I want you to see it. Look at John 21. Well, look at John 18 to start with. John 18. Verse 12. A band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. First they led him to Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So Peter followed Jesus. So he's at the home of the high priest. So did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal file because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves. Peter also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered, I have spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who've heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. What I said is right, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Peter was standing and warming himself at that fire, and they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Three times Peter denies Jesus, literally hours after he pledged that he would die for him. All of which brings us to John 21. One of the most precious experiences in the Bible for any sinner and certainly for us as we contemplate the implications of these words for our own lives. Verse 15, John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, 
do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you don't want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Now, you may not connect those dots, but you'll note that Peter denies Jesus three times in John 18. In John 21, Jesus asked him three times to affirm him. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He is the disciple whom Jesus restored. You might ask the question, why does Jesus focus so much on Peter? Because Peter is exhibit A. He's exhibit A for pride. He's exhibit A for arrogance. He's exhibit A for brashness. He's exhibit A for wanting to resort to the world's techniques and the world's methods, pulling out a dagger and cutting off the high priest's ear. That's not Jesus' way. Peter is exhibit A. He's exhibit A for all the things that the world believes in and subscribes to, and yet Jesus confronts him and says, even though you're exhibit A for one more thing, and that is this great and colossal failure, you stand up in all your braggadocious and say, I will never de deny you, and then hours later you are literally denying me and denying me and denying me. What is important here in John 21, it is the recollection that Jesus knows of his denial and nonetheless restores him. What, what, what takeaway can we glean for ourselves as we reflect on Peter's life this morning? We can recognize that we too have experienced this kind of weak faith. In our experience with Christ, we have failed him. We have disappointed him. We have disappointed him repeatedly in many cases. And nonetheless, the Lord is ready to restore. He is the God who puts us back in the game, who gives us back our joy, who wants us to be faithful to that which we know to be the case. And what do we know about Peter? Well, read 1 Peter again. Read this understanding. It's a man who's willing to say, no matter what comes, no matter from whom it comes, let us be found faithful. Let us, let us commit our way to Christ and let us recognize that when he comes again, we want to be those who are counted to the glory of Christ and the praise of Christ. We want to be found as those who are watching and waiting for our Savior because Christ has restored us for that purpose. The reason we're on the planet, the reason this church exists, the reason that this matters to our lives is because every one of us are this guy. Every one of us. We make promises to God about our faithfulness. We make promises to God about our intentions. And we don't keep them. We intend better. But we don't. And we need this message for our own hearts this morning. That Christ is the God who takes our junk and he takes our trash and he takes our failures and he takes, if you will, the stench that we've created in our lives and he restores us. He forgives us. He washes us.
And he puts us back into serving him. I want to encourage you today to recognize that God has called people who are extraordinarily ordinary. And none is more ordinary than this guy, Peter. And yet, God gave him a place that is unique. I don't know that God's going to give you some unique place. I don't care if he does or not, frankly. I don't care if he does that for me. I just want to be faithful to my task, to my job, to my responsibilities, to your task. I want to help you. And I want us together to one day be on the lookout for the coming of Christ. Because he's coming again. And when he comes, I want to be counted in that number who knew he was coming and expected it. And may God give us grace as we consider Peter. If God could love this man, if God can use this man, if God can multiply the effectiveness and witness of this man, he can certainly use us. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your care for us today. Thank you for the mercies you've shown us in Christ. Thank you for the faithfulness of your word and your spirit. Thank you. Lord, we give you glory. There is no one like you. You alone are Lord. And we pray that you'll help us to respond to Jesus, even as Peter. Follow him, trust him, look to him. And then, Lord, when we fail, to experience his restoration, to experience his return. Lord, we thank you. Give us grace to look to Jesus, to believe in him all the more. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.